text today is in Matthew 9. We're returning to our series through Matthew. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. That is on page 814 if you have the Black House Pew Bible. And preaching for us is one of our lay elders, Darren Swanson. Um, So if you are physically able, would you join me by standing as we read God's word together? Again, this is Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. You can come up here, dear. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus and his example of compassion on the crowds. God, would we learn from him today? Um, Thank you for Darren and his preparation um, in this passage. Would his words um, just speak to us into our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit? Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, all that is contained in your word, and would it have its intended effect on us. Spirit, be at work in us and through Darren. Give him boldness and strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, As you guys know, at least some of you guys might know, uh, a few weeks ago I was in Africa with some friends of ours, and uh, I had a really good time. It was honestly one of the most difficult times um, that I've kind of had, but it was also one of the best times, because God really showed me a lot, um, and, you know, our friends there are awesome. We were able to stay with them. They were not annoyed by us. It was great. Um, but my friend told me a story that I thought was hilarious that I think really illustrates some of the, the heart of this passage. Um, I don't know if this story was like a commercial or something like that, but it, I thought it was really funny. And he says, you know, there's like this wife who comes up to her husband and says, you know what, I'm done. I'm leaving I'm tired of doing everything around the house. And the husband says, hold on, hold on. Wait, sweetheart, it's okay. Because, you know, I've been leaving dishes and plates on the table, and every morning I wake up, they're just gone. Like, almost magically. It's, it's really weird. Like, like, every day I wake up and the clothes are just put away. I open my dresser, and every time there's clothes in there, they're just folded Sometimes I even test it out, right? And so, like, I try to leave as many dishes on the table as I can. And then, like, every morning they're just clean and they're, and they're put away. Honestly, you should just try it. Try it. And the wife just walks out the house. Um, it's funny, but I think um, we kind of view missions 
and evangelism and ministry in similar terms. Like, like it's almost just magical, right? Like, I, I don't have to do it. Somebody else is just going to get it done. But that's not what this passage is showing us at all. Someone has to do it. And Jesus wants to use us. He wants to use us. And so this morning we're going to continue through the gospel according to Matthew. So if you have your Bibles open, please keep them open. Thus far we've seen quite a bit take place. We're starting off in verse 35, and verse 35 sort of is kind of like a recap of all the ministry, all the work that Jesus has done. It's a summary of what had taken place. And so the scene is this. Jesus, he sort of momentarily withdraws from his ministry. He looks upon the crowds, and he has compassion. He has compassion on them. And it's because of that compassion that Jesus calls on his disciples to pray for people to go out and continue his ministry. And so my main point this morning is simply this. Jesus loves the lost and suffering. Jesus loves the lost and suffering. And I want to make the case this morning that if you love the lost and suffering like, like Jesus does, three things will be a reality in your life. First, you'll make ministry holistic. Secondly, you'll make ministry compassionate. And thirdly, you'll make ministry secondary. That seems odd that I would say that, but of course I will explain it, so hold on. Firstly, you're going to make ministry holistic, right? If you love Jesus... The way, if you love Jesus, and if you love people the way that Jesus loves people, you'll make ministry holistic. We see this in verse 35. Read it with me. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. In this verse, we see what ministry is all about, and it's actually very simple. Ministry is word and deed. Ministry is gospel proclamation and gospel saturation. Ministry is evangelizing unbelievers and alleviating physical suffering and brokenness. That's what we've seen in these last few chapters. Jesus is called into public ministry at the end of chapter 4, and then Jesus immediately begins teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God while healing people. So for Jesus, and like many of us, Word and deed were inseparable. Jesus had a balanced, or what I'm calling a holistic, view of ministry. For Jesus, ministry looked like preaching the gospel. That is, Jesus was preaching about who he was. He was preaching repentance from sin and faith in him. He was preaching the gospel. But he was also healing, helping, alleviating all kinds of of suffering. And it's not that Jesus didn't recognize the difference between gospel proclamation and deeds of mercy. The gospel is not the same as fixing social issues. But rather for Jesus, they were connected. After all, how, how can you bring about a kingdom in which none of the citizens of that kingdom 
experience the blessings of that kingdom. So let me define ministry as precisely as possible. Biblical ministry is working to alleviate the effects of the fall by speaking the gospel while serving those in need. And if this is done well, disciples are made. That's what holistic ministry looks like. But the context here is much more specific than just doing ministry in the sort of general, vague kind of way. Jesus has a very specific kind of ministry in mind. Jesus wants us to think about sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wants us to think about a harvest with not enough laborers. In other words, Jesus is focused on those who have never heard the gospel. This, brothers and sisters, is what we call missions. Missions. Missions is a certain kind of ministry. Missions is ministry aimed at the unchurched and the unreached. The unchurched are those who have very little understanding of Christianity because they are so far removed from it and its effects, both in their own personal lives or the social context in which they find themselves. And the unreached are those who have never heard of Christianity. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who die every week who have never heard of Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus loves them. And Jesus wants to use me. He wants to use you. He wants to use us to labor alongside of him. So, Dr. Anna, Jesus wants to use you. Bukuru, Jesus wants to use you. Cade, Jesus wants to use you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And Jesus wants to use you and send you in some capacity to a place where people have not heard of him, where there's no access to the gospel. And so my question for you this morning Is your ministry or is your understanding of ministry holistic? Or is it lopsided and and unbalanced? This question is really important because I, I think we so easily lose sight of what this whole ministry thing is even about. And so in my in my experience, I think there are three lies that we tend to believe about this. Three lies. One of which is this. Ministry is for some Christians, but not others. I get asked this all the time. Maybe not so much anymore, but I certainly used to get asked this a lot. I would tell people like, hey, you know, I'm a pastor or I preach or something like that. And they would say, oh, well, when did you feel called into ministry? Right? And the technical answer is, I was called into ministry the day that Jesus saved me. Right? Like, you were called into ministry the day that Jesus saved you, if I'm defining ministry right. 
So, that's one lie that we have to fight against. That's one lie we have to fight against, brothers and sisters. But secondly, I think we fall into this lie that ministry is only about deeds or it's only about evangelism, right? We have this sort of either-or mentality. You know, many people say that it's, you know, it's important that you just love people, that you just help them. And, and the problem is that a lot of Christians only care about evangelism. And then on the other hand, there's lots of people who have ministries, for example, where they hand out Bible, you know, Bibles or tracts or something like that. And, and, and that's helpful. Don't hear me say that's a bad idea. I'm just saying that's not necessarily holistic. People say, well, you know, what good is it helping someone get out of poverty if they're going to hell? And I would more or less agree. But they reason, well, if we just preach the gospel, we've really done what we are supposed to do. And while it's true we need to prioritize the gospel and its proclamation, helping alleviate temporal suffering and societal problems are not less important because of that, No, no, no. Those things are even more important because God is saving people. Here's what I mean. Jesus' death on the cross not only made a way for you and I to be saved, right? But but his death is, it's the beginning of God's restoration of the entire universe. You see, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden... It's not just that humans are now sinful, we are, but it's that all of creation is cursed. And so that's why we have sickness and death and why technology fails and things break and there's natural disasters, all of that. All that now exists because of that. But Jesus died to fix that as well. Hear Colossians on this. It says that for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. So the reason for the primacy of evangelism and conversion is not because we don't care about creation, it's because everything in creation was and is is meant to bless humans. Humans who were made to enjoy it with redeemed souls and bodies. Humans who were made to enjoy a renewed creation forever. But I think thirdly, and this is probably the most um, tricky (laughs) lie that we fall into, is that ministry is about me and my preferences. You see, the aim of ministry is to help others, right? It's, 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 it's to help other people and meet them in their spiritual needs and their physical needs. It's not about our own preferences. You know, people don't do kids' ministry because they don't like kids. With all due respect, it's not about you, right? Like, people don't like talking about Jesus because it makes them uncomfortable, with all due respect, brothers and sisters, it's not about you. Like, like this is bigger than you. People don't like serving on the band because they're afraid. But it's not about you. It's not about me. 
So, Karis, we should aim to make our ministry holistic. That's the first thing I want us to see. But secondly, our ministry should burst forth with, with compassion for those suffering. You see, Jesus loves the lost. He loves those who are suffering. And so our ministry should be compassionate. Should be compassionate. That's the second thing I want us to see. Ministry should be compassionate. Verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When it says that Jesus had compassion for the crowd, it literally means that he was, he was moved sort of deep in his soul, deep in his gut. It's as if he felt the very pain that the people were going through. It's like, you know, we have a lot of mothers here because we have a lot of kids, um, more kids than adults. But moms, you know this, right? When you see your child hurt themselves, when you, when you hear your child crying, right? You, it's as if you can feel, you, you can just feel the pain, right? It moves you. It's the same way with Jesus. It's the same way with Jesus. Jesus is a shepherd and he cannot help but shepherd. Especially the shepherdless. But how exactly are the people suffering in this passage? It says that they are harassed and helpless. This this phrase, harassed and helpless, literally means torn up and, and, and thrown down. And so the people, they were suffering under the hands of the sort of religious legalism and and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They were suffering under the uh, unjust treatment and abuses of the Romans. They were suffering from the everyday hardships of life just because we live, you know, under the fall. They were suffering because they did not have gospel though they should have been because of the, you know, the religious teachers were doing their jobs, they would have pointed people to the hope that they had in the Messiah. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. Here, Ezekiel 34 on this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force... In harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep 
and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and bring them back. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in, ju- I will feed them in justice. You see, that's what it means to be a sheep without a shepherd. But you see, the reason why shepherdless sheep are so prone to harm is, is not contrary to popular belief because sheep are stupid. <laughs> when the Bible calls us sheep, it's not meant to crush our intellect, but rather it's meant to curb our sense of autonomy. Sheep are not exceptionally stupid. Sheep are exceptionally social. And this is what modern people don't like. We like to think that we do our own thing. But here Ephesians 2 on this. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked following what? The course of this world. Meaning, look, without Jesus, you were a slave to the culture. I don't care what nobody says. You were a slave to the culture. If you are not in Christ this morning, you are a slave to the culture. We're led astray. We're not as innovative as we'd like to think. And this is why Jesus gives us shepherds. This is why Jesus gives us the church. Here, Ephesians 4 on this. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until what? We attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that what? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind, by every doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, all of that. So Jesus, like the good shepherd he is, he's deeply moved when he sees sheep without a shepherd. And his heart, it, it, it bursts with compassion. And ours should too, right? If we are Christians, if we are little Christs, as it were, our hearts should be moved. And so, Cars, what is it that dampens your compassion for the lost? What is it? I think there are at least four things that I see in my heart. Firstly, I think there often is very little love for God. Right? Like, if you love God in his glory, in his majesty, that, then you cannot help but tell other people about him. You, it just bubbles up out of you. Or maybe it's that the realities of heaven and hell don't deeply move you. Have you, have you thought about joy forever, a renewed creation? Like, no more destruction no more wars. No more aging. I, I don't need glasses when I get to heaven. My eyes are going to be perfect. You don't need a wheelchair in heaven because we're going to run. We're going to jump. 
We're going to rejoice. Not for a hundred years, but forever. Does that, does that move you? And do, do the terrors of hell move you? I know we don't like talking about it, but there is a such thing as hell. People do suffer there, and it lasts forever. Or is it distance? Like we, like we sung about this morning, like, like do fences guard your house and home? Not just physically, but in a deeper sort of metaphorical sense. Have you separated yourselves from others? Or maybe you have an us versus them mentality, right? You, you, don't, you don't like going over to those people because they're those people. And everybody knows how those people are. And you can fill in the blank with whatever those people are supposed to be. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So, so far we've seen that Christ's love for the lost should make our ministry holistic. We see that in verse 35. And then verse 36 shows us that Christ's love for the lost and suffering should make our ministry and and us compassionate. And then lastly, and this is the strange point, it seems, but lastly, Christ's love for the lost and suffering should make our ministry secondary. Should make our ministry secondary. Look at verses 37 through 38 with me. Then Jesus, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think this is what's going on here. Jesus, he moves from this sort of sheep-shepherd metaphor to that of harvest and laborers. And the language of the harvest being plentiful, in this instance, that is, it refers to people from all over the world who are ready, by God's sovereignty, to receive the gospel. The laborers are then Christians who are sent out by God to do the work of ministry, specifically missions. So as the Father sent the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit to empower you and I to do ministry, just like how Jesus did. And so, while fellowship and other things are important, they are crucial to cultivating discipleship, fellowship is not the same as being being sent. Fellowship is not the same as laboring. This passage is a foretaste of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And so Jesus Moved by his compassion for the lost, he says, Look, 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 look at this harvest, guys. Like, look, look, look at all these people. My people. And there's lots of work to be done, but there are so few people. I know many of us feel this reality, don't we? Right, like, (laughs) there's lots of kids here, but not enough cars, kids, volunteers. There's lots of people who don't know about Jesus in, in, you know, this neighborhood, but we don't have someone to really lead the efforts. There's lots of people who've never heard of the gospel in Japan and in the Middle East, but there are so few people willing to go. 
And so, as Aaron will talk about over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to use the disciples to address this issue. But notice what Jesus says in verses 37 and 38. Look carefully with me. He says, the laborers are few, verse 38, therefore, pray. Pray earnestly. Jesus doesn't say, the laborers are few, so go. He says, the laborers are few, so pray. Strange. And what Jesus is getting at, it's not just prayer in the sort of vague sense where we just ask God once and move on. He's talking about begging. He's talking about pleading with God. Hence the phrase in the ESV, pray earnestly. For some of us, I know this is not a very profound insight, but here's the thing. Praying is not our first impulse, is it? You know, when there's a problem in ministry, here's what we do. We, we read books, right? That, that's the first thing we do. I need to read a book about such and such so I can minister to so-and-so. We, we listen to podcasts because I need to learn about how to minister to so-and-so. That's the first thing that we do. We get angry at people because they're not on your time schedule, right? And they're not doing things the way that you want, want things to be done. And so we get angry, right? Or we start getting anxious because everything's falling apart. We, we get out the dry erase boards and we start marking stuff up and start drawing diagrams. That's the first thing that we do. Or we just give up, right? Because it's too, it's too much, too difficult. But Jesus says, pray. That's the first thing that you should do. And, and not just pray during ministry. He, sa- he says, pray before you even start doing ministry. He says, I don't want you going anywhere until you have first gone into the prayer closet. You see, this is what I, what I mean when I say make ministry secondary. So, so don't go posting on social media that, you know, my pastor said that ministry isn't important. I, I never said that. In fact, I said something even more shocking. My point is this. Ministry, your ministry, even my ministering to you right now is worthless. It's worthless unless it's second to prayer. Prayer precedes ministry. Prayer precedes ministry. It is the fuel of ministry. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A few weeks ago, Two weeks ago, Bobby? I don't know. You, y'all went to Chicago. I was jealous. They need to borrow my van. And so just imagine. Imagine with me. I know, Bang, it's hard to imagine that I would clean my car. But look, imagine I clean out my van. I get my tires rotated. I get the oil changed. I change the windshield wipers. I do everything. Even, I even get TVs installed in the back. So Ben and Raina can watch Daniel Tiger with the kids. Imagine I do all that, right? And then I drive my van up to his house and turn off the van and hand him the keys. Bobby wakes up the next day. He goes out to the car and goes to start the car, and it's not working. 
And he calls me up and says, Darren, what, what is going on? It's like, the van's not working. Like, did you put gas in this thing? It's on E. It's totally out. And I say, well, dude, you told me to, you asked me to give you my van, so I gave you the van. I didn't think I needed to put gas in it. And Bobby's like, I can't go anywhere. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, didn't you see the TVs that I installed? Like, no. It's not how this works. Prayer is the fuel. So Jesus' call is for us to pray first so that we recognize that nothing we do in ministry, not us going somewhere, not other people joining our ministry, not fruitfulness in ministry, none of it is dependent upon us. After all, whose harvest is it anyway, right? Hear this quote from John Piper on the role of prayer. He says, prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. Prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God and the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and and exalts God as all-sufficient. This is why the missionary enterprise advances by prayer. But how does Christ's love before I move on, how does, how does Christ's love motivate us to see ministry differently, right? Like, like, how does his love reshape the way that we do and view ministry? And it's simple. Chorus, by virtue of Christ's union with you, you've been given the identity of a minister. Yes. But let me be so bold as to say this. Your union with Christ, which is experienced by prayer, is the fount from which all other callings and labor flows. In other words, when Christ saves you, he first makes you a new person and then tells you to go out and live differently. What's most important then is not what you are doing, but who you are in Christ. Your ministry towards others was never meant to be the thing that got you up in the morning as important as ministry is. Hear Luke 10, verses 17 through 20 on this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like, we're doing some really cool things. Like, people are being exercised. And people are being healed. This is pretty awesome. And Jesus says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like, good job. Like, you're doing great. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Yeah, you're doing great. But don't, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Karis, what excites me most in life is not that I get to be your pastor. Hope that's not too controversial. What excites me most in life is that for some reason, God saved me. That for some reason, my name is written in the book of life. Like, like I'm saved. That's what excites me most. Not that I get to stand here Not that I get to play piano. I love it. That's not what excites me most. 
is that I'm saved, that he's mine, I'm his. Ministering to people comes second. Being precedes doing. Therefore, prayer precedes going. I want you to believe that. And so, just to remind you where we've been this morning. We've seen that Christ's love for the lost and for sufferers transforms three aspects of our ministry in life. Firstly, his love shapes our ministry, and so we should make it holistic, addressing you know, the needs of people by proclamation and deed. And then secondly, his love for those suffering should change our motivations and our heart posture towards others. And lastly, his love for others should cause us to pause and, and make prayer come first. But as I close, I do want to address the fact that for many of us, this is really difficult, right? Like, some of you, I know you feel this. You're like, man, this is, I feel like I can barely get out of bed in the morning. My kids are crazy. I'm looking for a job. Like, I don't feel like I can minister to anyone. Some people feel, and I, I know this from conversations, it's like, I, I just lack compassion. And I honestly don't know how to change it. I get that. And you know, as I studied this passage, there was this sort of nagging question in my head. <laughs> And maybe some of you guys have thought about this, and it's this. You know, why didn't Jesus just do it himself? Couldn't he have just, like, miraculously saved and ministered to all these people? Like, he is God. I mean, he knows these disciples are basically royal screw-ups. I mean, they're basically going to get him killed. Why does God even want to use laborers? Does he need to? And then it dawned on me. If you know, if it's God's harvest, right, if, if God's the one who's sovereign over salvation in this whole enterprise, that means he doesn't need us to get the job done, which means the reason he wants us to labor with him is that it brings him joy. It brings him joy to have him work alongside of us. This is what John 4 is getting at when <laughs> Jesus, he, he looks up, you know, in his interaction with the woman at the well, and he says, look, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and, and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I want to encourage you with this. Jesus has done the foundational work of praying and laboring for you, for us. He has people all over the world ready to receive the gospel. That's what it means for him to be the Lord of the harvest. It's his work ultimately. So he's calling us into the joy of receiving the work that he's already prepared. Do you, do you get that? It's, it's a beautiful reality. It changes everything. And so I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but 
The only reason you or I are saved is because someone else took the time to pray for you and to take the risk of sharing the gospel with you. You see, laborers are necessary and someone labored for you. And it's not just the person who shared the gospel with you, but it's Christ who labored for you, who prayed for you. That's exactly what John 17 is showing us, right? In John 17, Jesus says, the high priestly prayer, he says, I've prayed for these, that not one of my sheep would be lost, and I've accomplished the work, the labor, that you, Father, have prepared for me. And so the gospel is not labor for God and try to make sure you're as loving as possible. The the gospel is not that I need to do, you know, all these things so that God can love me and so that my ministry is successful. The gospel is this. Receive the labor that Jesus has already done for you on your behalf. You see, you're, you're not going to see yourself in ministry let alone do ministry in a balanced way unless you first cherish the fact that Jesus labored for you and he is still ministering to you today. You're not going to be compassionate as you minister to people until you first realize that it was Christ's passion that drove him to the cross to make you an enemy and to a friend. You're not going to see the need to prioritize prayer until you realize that Jesus prayed and is praying for you, that you would do what? Go forth and bear fruit in his harvest. So if you want Jesus and his love to transform your ministry, brothers, sisters, let the gospel seep down deep into your soul. And so as I close this morning, I don't know if you want to write this down or just hold it in your head, but there's two things that I want you to do. I want you to pray for laborers whenever and wherever you see a need. Wherever you find that Jesus' kingdom hasn't broken in, I want you to immediately pray for God to send laborers out into the field. When you're traveling on vacation to a different state and you see that there's brokenness, I want you to pray for laborers to be sent. As you go overseas and you realize that there are people who are unreached, pray for laborers. Every time you look at a map or read a book about this or that country, pray for laborers and be ready for him to send and use you. The time between between our prayer for laborers and God answering our prayer and maybe even sending us maybe two years, maybe two months, Maybe two minutes. But pray. And then secondly, related to that, be ready to be the answer to the prayer. Some of us are called right now to go and be a missionary. And you've been fighting that call. Some of you have children who God is going to raise up to be missionaries and go to very difficult places and be in harm's way. Don't stand in God's way. Don't stand in God's way. Do not be the parent that stands in God's way of your child being used. Do not be the Christian that stands in the way of people not receiving the gospel. 
as we close this morning, um, I, I want to go ahead and invite the band to come up. Um, and as we do so, I'm, this is not going to be on the screen, um, but I just want to encourage you guys with the second portion of Ezekiel 34. I read some of it earlier, but here's some of the second part of that. It says that I will make with them a covenant of peace peace, and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. Ezekiel goes on to say, They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, would you, would you pray with me? Amen. God, I, I, um, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, this is, it's insane that you would choose to use us imperfect laborers. But I, I just ask right now that before we do anything, I pray that we would be with you in prayer, asking you to work on our behalf. God, I ask that we would look up, look around us and see the harvest. I ask that our congregation would see themselves as ministers. Every single one of us has a role to play. And I ask that you would supply our missionaries and missionaries in other churches with laborers, with workers. God, we we plead with you for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. Please do this work. Amen.